faces conflict at home, at work, in the community, in the world. Fix Your Conflicts is a show about how to fix those conflicts with practical tips and techniques. Doug Knoll brings to the internet airwaves the first of its kind, a show that teaches peaceful resolution to life's daily battles. That's Fix Your Conflicts with Doug Knoll, broadcasting live every Monday at 11 a.m. Pacific on World Talk Radio Studio A. Answer the president's call to service. As an AmeriCorps member, I know that Americans everywhere are helping each other, showing strength of character. As a senior Corps volunteer, I know that Americans are showing kindness and compassion. As an AmeriCorps member, I see plenty of American spirit and enthusiasm. Together, we make America strong. Together, we make America great. Find out how you can serve at nationalservice.org. It's your world. It's your chance to make it better. Apply online at nationalservice.org. The world is talking. World Talk Radio, Studio A. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you this week from the Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University, home of the awesome football pirates who have won their first two games this year in 2008. That might not be true next week, so I'm saying it now while I can, but they're off to the best start in living memory. The pirates, however, do not represent me in terms of their uh, activities other than on the football field, and I do not speak for the university in this show. That's our legal disclaimer, nor does our guest speak for anyone but himself, certainly, and thus we each give our own opinions. This is the fifth season of... Civil War Talk Radio. We have had some very interesting conversations already and look forward to more to come today. Uh, and next week, we'll have Peter Cousins on the show. Uh, I believe George Rabel is coming up after that. Looking down the line, Ed Ayers, uh, Mark Neely Jr., and others will be joining us uh, this year to talk Civil War history with us. So please continue to listen in and uh, send your suggestions for people you'd like to hear uh, on the show. All those suggestions are always welcome. And donations to help pay for the books uh, that we discuss or for uh, other small overhead costs that we have here are always welcome. Thanks very much to those who have contributed. If you want to do so, uh, the PayPal 
address, the easiest way to do it is civilwartr at aol.com. Well, enough of uh, the shameless shilling and uh, selling of, of the show and books and other things. Let's move ahead uh, with our guest today, uh, uh, Noah Andre Trudeau, author of Southern Storm, Sherman's March to the Sea. Mr. Trudeau, are you there? I sure am, Jerry. Wonderful. Um, do you go, uh, may I call you by a first name? Do you... uh, folks call me Andy, so why don't you go ahead and do that? Well, thank you, Andy. I'll do that. And do call me Jerry. Um, I gather you're in Chicago today. Is that is that right? That's you're, correct. Uh, out, uh, and you, you'll be visiting our friends at the Abraham Lincoln Bookshop tomorrow. That's correct. Yesterday was the Pritzker Military Library, and tomorrow is the Abraham Lincoln Bookshop. Well, please please say hi to Dan Weinberg and, and Bjorn and all the, the folks at the bookshop for me, and I know you will enjoy doing their uh, uh, virtual book signing, which uh, after people have heard you today, they can then see you and hear you tomorrow uh, online uh, with the, the virtual book signing. That is what you're doing there? Uh, that's what I'm doing. I, I will look forward to it because it's a new experience for me. I, I did one of those in January of this year, and it, it's fun. It's very, very casual, and they just sit you at a table and talk, and you sign books while you're talking uh, for people all around the world who can buy your book from great distances, and <laughs> you sign it and they mail it. It works sounds, very well. Sounds like fun. Yes. Well, let's talk about uh, your book here, Southern Storm. Uh, is this uh, is this what you do now? Uh, you're the the blurb on the back says uh, you are a former national public radio producer. Uh, do you do something else other than write these days? Think about writing. <laughs> no, I'm uh, I'm launched into the brave new world, uh, doing magazine articles and uh, hopefully uh, in between doing books. Well, that that is a, a brave sort of thing to do. I always admire people uh, who who make their living any kind of freelance activity, music or writing or anything. That's, mm-hmm. Very impressive. Um, what got you interested in Civil War topics? Well, I've always been interested in American history, and it was a combination of moving to the Washington, D.C. area, which, uh, you know, geographically is absolutely surrounded by the Civil War. You can't go north, east, south, or west without encountering a battlefield within about an hour or so or at least a historic site. If you go east, you've got Point Lookout uh, to uh, to do that. And um, I came across a book by uh, Burke Davis called Nine Days, which was a study of the Appomattox campaign, which was the first book that I think really put historical figures on a human stage in the midst of a grand campaign, in this case the, the Appomattox campaign. It was It was inspirational. And, you know, we all connect with the Civil War, and for a researcher, uh, thankfully, you know, the majority of the materials in English, so uh, uh, you have to dig a little to find it, but uh, once you find it, you can usually work with it right away and not have to uh, go through any intermediate steps to uh, utilize it. Well, frequently on, on the show, we'll ask uh, about the subject of the book and, and give people a little background, but I th- I think it's safe to say anyone listening to the show knows what Sherman's March was and a little something about it. So we'll we'll come back to that in a moment. But you talk about sources. What what kind of research did you do? To uh, where, where did you start looking, and, and uh, what kind of places did you go for for this book? 
this book because so many of his regiments were Western regiments. Uh, my previous work has been heavily in the uh, Eastern Theater, where the majority of the regiments were New York, Pennsylvania, New England, uh, those sorts of states. This time I had to swing way out to Minnesota, down into Iowa, uh, Michigan, Ohio, uh, visiting historic societies, state libraries, a real emphasis on primary materials, primary in the sense of primary to 1864-65. This is one of the those campaigns that has become so iconic to the American consciousness that it's being, almost from the get-go, it was starting to be twisted around. And so when soldiers 20 or 30 years after the war began to write their memoirs, you know, they were being affected by this sort of distortion of the story that already existed and reflected that in their own writing. So you have to treat the those things that are 20 years out with a lot more care. So I really, whenever possible, try to start with a foundation of manuscript material from 1864 uh, to just establish a baseline before I started figuring out what of the published materials can I really uh, trust and accept. So it was it was quite a challenge from that way. What kind of what differences did you see between the contemporaneous sources and the the later sources? Well, I'll give you one. I think for me it was a striking example. Um, I'm sure you have many knowledgeable uh, listeners about the Civil War. One, the one word, as I, when I do the talk in front of a, a group, I say the one, the one word you can use in mixed company that describes uh, Sherman soldiers during the march to the sea is the word bummers. And I had, in my narrative, worked roughly chronologically, and I'd gotten just at the outside of Savannah, when I had to step back and say, wait a minute, I never used the word bummers. And I examined why, and I realized that leaning heavily on manuscript diaries and manuscript letters, those soldiers at the time invariably referred to themselves as foragers in the process of foraging. I, cannot, I, I must tell you that of the 200 diaries and randomly sampled from, again, Ohio, Michigan, Pennsylvania, all around those areas, not a single one used the word bummers. I'm convinced that it was floating around because it shows up in one official order written in uh, early December. So it's, it's around, but it's certainly not the dominant word that it later became. And I'm convinced that what happens is when they get to Savannah, the, the half dozen or so reporters file their reports, and as reporters do, they start to reshape the raw material into a story that they can tell, and they latch on to that word, and by the time the Carolinas campaign, which follows the Savannah campaign, is underway, you start to see it appearing in letters, and so it's a real case where the, and then when the soldiers are writing their memoirs 20 years after the war, of course they were Sherman's bummers, uh, but the contemporaneous evidence suggests for most of them it was a brand new word in December of 1864. So historical memory is shaped um, by 
uh, not just what people remember, but what they they, they remember remembering. Uh. Well, you know, historical memory, in a way, it's a process, and it's a it's a process by which different stakeholders twist certain pieces of it. You know, for instance, in in the state of you know Georgians in eight, in late eighteen sixty four, eighteen sixty five had to live with what happened and the natural question that was being asked in virtually every other confederate state at that point is why didn't you do more to stop sherman so you know thus was born the uh, overwhelming enemy force against uh, scattered and hapless uh, defenders uh, they never had a chance uh, you know you, it's like sherman marched through a vacuum of power when you know when you parse it out and look at it more carefully there was a, a significant effort to do something about it 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 fla- found floundered but it doesn't mean they didn't try and they and sherman was expecting trouble at two or three points in the march he is he is seriously rejiggering his march orders in anticipation of a serious challenge but what really breaks it down is that you really have three core areas of of defense there around the core targets, Augusta, Macon, and Savannah. Each area basically is looking out for itself. So what they could accomplish by combining resources and and moving uh, aggressively at at key choke points is completely uh, missed, these opportunities, because they're just too busy protecting their own little area of responsibility. And as a result, uh, Sherman brushes against them at, um, you know, Macon and there's the Battle of Griswoldville and outside of, 20 miles outside of Augusta, there's a Battle of uh, Waynesboro. But uh, there's just no significant collaboration to utilize what resources are available. And I think rather than to fess up that we blew it, you know, the thought was it was a better story just to say, well, there was really nothing in his way to stop him, when in fact there was. Well, it, it, uh, let me think. When you say that the uh, – and you make the, the argument in your book at a number of points that the, the southern command control structure was, was flawed, that the, uh, as Sherman goes from Atlanta into the heart of Georgia – He's deliberately deceptive about where he's headed. His own people don't know. It's not clear that he knows necessarily, but eventually they will come out at Savannah. Uh, And given this this ambiguity of where he's going, the Confederates have different uh, centers of resistance. You suggest Macon and and Augusta Mm -hmm. uh, and Milledgeville, but they don't uh, coordinate. But it seems one thing your book does quite well is, is show how limited the the confederate resources were if you took all three of those forces um and massed them uh in any one place uh, sherman still would have steamrolled right over them well not necessarily um sherman was vulnerable in front and in back in back he was vulnerable because he had 2500 wagons he was dragging along behind his columns and you know, you know, if an if an officer utilizes a large number of assets to protect something, that tells you how much he values it. And in the course of this march, Sherman's individual column commanders are using 
uh, a quarter to a third of their available force at any given time to protect those wagons. So they are, they are allotting significant resources. So they're worried about anything happening to their wagons. On the front side, Sherman has three major rivers to cross. And in fact, as, a, as an example of what could have happened, uh, on the Oconee River, uh, on the right wing, Howard's wing, there are 700 Confederates on the east bank of the river at a, at a critical crossing point, and he can't get across. Howard can't get across, and for a day and a half, he is stymied. 30,000 men are stymied trying to get across the river. He's about to call on Sherman for help to push the left wing across and then swing down, but then he just you know, has that moment of saying, wait a minute, you know, there's 700 of them, i got 30,000 guys. He literally stretches out along the river until they stop shooting at him, and then he figures, well, there's no Confederates on the other side. We'll cross there, and that's how he does it. But had they, you know, the left wing at that point was having its own trouble getting across a series of destroyed bridges, but they faced no opposition up there, and had there been a coordinated effort, Sherman well might have been stopped in his tracks for two to three days, which would seriously start to degrade his operations because his army just couldn't survive without moving constantly into fresh areas of agriculture. So, well, I'd, uh, no, I, I would agree he might be held up for two or three days. I think make a good case there, but mm -hmm. but he also has uh, a, a cattle herd yep. with him. I mean, he's, he's not going to starve after two or three days. No, but in a way, on the one hand, all that supply is an ace in the hole against the possibility that his foraging won't work. But the real reason he has it is because he knows when he gets to Savannah, he's going to run out of foraging. And in mm -hmm. fact, that's the point where the Army does have some breakouts of incidences where units are missing their, their ration for a day because they're not, the food's not there and they, they can't find anything. So, you know, if he had been forced to consume all that supply uh, halfway in the march, he would have really been in, in a desperate situation when he got to Savannah. Well, I, I think, I guess I would say desperate sounds like overstating it. I, I think, I, I find it hard to imagine, based on what you've laid out here from the, the Confederate response, that there was much that could have been done about him. Um, well, you know, I, I, I too initially would have said desperate's probably the wrong word to use, but then I have to figure out, you know, here is Sherman, uh, famous for finding ways to outmaneuver and outflank enemy positions, mm -hmm. who, without really looking at other options, orders a head-on assault against Fort McAllister, which could have been uh, a seriously bloody affair. It was, it was tough enough as it was, but when you look at those defenses in the limited area where he could have, where his, his, where Hazen. Uh, could deploy his troops. Um, and Sherman was just absolutely determined. His orders to Hazen were, you must take that position. <clears throat> and then he crossed the river, and he's in communication range, and it's like, have you taken it yet? Well, come on, come on. So, I mean, you don't see Sherman pushing that hard for a battle at any many points in his campaigns. Hmm. Well, we'll talk about this more. We're going to take a short break. 
on Civil War Talk Radio. Our guest is Noah Andre Trudeau, author of Southern Storm, Sherman's March to the Sea. We'll be back in just a moment on Civil War Talk Radio. Mm-hmm. 